Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief for April 21st, 2023. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I'm going to be covering some stories this week from the U.S., uh, some interesting cases out of there with the Alec Baldwin uh, movie set situation uh, resolving in a sense, perhaps. Uh, some stuff out of uh, the, the Fox News uh, big defamation case as well and the uh, My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, actually kind of a related situation to the Fox News one. Uh, so I'm going to talk about those a little bit, but there's some cases out of Nova Scotia as well that uh, are quite interesting, I think, this week that I'll be discussing. The uh, William Sanderson uh, case is now over. Uh, they judge the, actually the court broadcast the parole eligibility section of the sentencing decision uh, just yesterday, and uh, Justice Chipman gave his decision on the parole ineligibility for uh, former almost med student, uh, William Sanderson. And uh, there's some other cases too I want to talk about. One is involving a lawyer who was charged with assault, but really the d decision, it's an appeal court decision, focuses more on the uh, judge that made the decision and the Crown Prosecutor. So I'm going to talk about that in a little bit of inside analysis of uh, how lawyers and judges get along, or sometimes don't, as in this case. Another one, uh, talk about the C.P. Allen, 15-year-old uh, there that was uh, charged with uh, attempted murder, and uh, there's been a development there in that case as well, and uh, talk about um, the potential for uh, automatic pardons. I'm just going to end with some, some thoughts on that. That's uh, coming into the news as well. So we'll start with uh, the United States and come back, work our way back to Nova Scotia, and the uh, sort of second half of the analysis here. So uh, first one, though, uh, for baseball fans, we're in the best time of the year or one of the best times when ball season has started. And there was a decision just this week uh, from Major League Baseball suspended Max Scherzer, the all-star uh, free agent signing, big free agent signing by the New York Mets in the offseason. And he's been given a 10-game suspension. If people are watching the games these days, one thing that's really nice is they have the pitch clock in, so the games go a lot faster. But you might notice after certain innings that when the pitchers come off the mound, the umpire will meet them, and they'll examine their hands, they'll examine their glove and uh, under their hat just to make sure they don't have any um, illegal substances on there, anything overly sticky that gives the pitcher a better grip on the ball. Well, Max Scherzer uh, was... Uh, accused found to be uh, he was he was told during this game after one inning to wash his hands after another inning to change his glove and wasn't good enough and he's been suspended now for 10 games uh, bring this up it's kind of a joke uh, in a sense because it's only baseball but uh, just to comment on procedural fairness so in this case it was the same umpire uh, this Phil uh, Cousy who's made the same, there's only been three pitchers uh, that have been accused and uh, suspended as a result of this, and Scherzer being the third, and they've all come as a result of inspections by this one umpire, Phil Cousy. So, all right, that's a flag there. And then what uh, Scherzer's complaining about is that, you know, all right, you get suspended for 10 games, or you want to appeal your suspension, you appeal that also internally to Major League Baseball. So, not good procedural fairness. Most administrative law... 
situations you would expect there would be some internal process you appeal it internally up maybe one or two levels but then there's an option at least to go get judicial review of those administration uh, administrative decisions not the case here uh, so Scherzer's going to miss a couple of starts and uh, anyway, we'll see. Hopefully that doesn't affect the, the team unduly as they get down uh, to the end of the season in September, October. If they're a game or two be out of the playoffs or out of a good position, they may look back on this. Anyway, okay. So that's one thing out of the U.S. The second one, though, this uh, uh, my pillow, or sorry, Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin's the next one I want to talk about. Uh, you know, great actor, celebrity uh, Alec Baldwin. He's had some troubles with the law, some, uh, you know, allegations of violence but this was from this uh, movie set in New Mexico and the movie's called Rust it's back filming now uh, but in Montana they've moved the production to Montana and Baldwin was uh, playing a guy who was supposed to be shoot you know had a gun in his hand and in the scene he was going to be shooting well uh, the gun as it turned out had a real bullet in it and uh, somebody was killed cinematographer so uh, he was charged. He was charged, and others, uh, the armor or the person that looks after weapons on set, has also been charged. Well, this week the district attorney uh, announced that the charges against Baldwin are being dropped. Now, I talked about this case, I think, a few months ago, and this district attorney, of course, in the U.S., district attorneys are elected, and so that leads to all kinds of, you know, manipulative kind of behaviors and uh, things that you wouldn't see in a nonpartisan uh, scenario. Well, this one, uh, this district attorney, Mary uh, Carmack Altwies, really came off to me as a self-promoter, somebody who was trying to use Alec Baldwin's celebrity to promote her own career and her own uh, sort of agendas. Well, uh, that got changed. She appointed uh, independent pro special prosecutors and what that meant, uh, which she seems not to have realized at first, was that she herself had to then recuse herself from the case, which she did. Well, these new prosecutors looked over the evidence a little differently, and uh, with some help from the defense lawyers, found that the guns had been uh, the gun had been modified before Baldwin had it, because one of the things that came out was Baldwin was kept saying, "Well, I didn't even pull the trigger." And everyone's like, well, you must have at least pulled the trigger. If you, It's one thing to say you didn't think there was a real bullet in there. That seems reasonable enough. But to not even have pulled the trigger, well, it turns out there's evidence now has emerged that the gun had been modified before Baldwin got it. And so, in fact, no uh, pull of the trigger needed to happen in order for the gun to fire. So uh, this is what the new prosecutors are uh, accepting as evidence and so now they've uh, withdrawn the charges against him now in doing so they've said that uh, they could if further investigation reveals uh, you know lace charges against Baldwin again it seems unlikely I mean it just seemed these were completely improper anyway it's not the actor's responsibility to make sure that the gun is safe that's somebody else's job actors don't have that expertise you hire armors people with weapons expertise on set and so uh, that should be where the buck uh, stops, which seems to be what's happening here now, that there's some um, unbiased prosecutors involved, people not trying to further their own careers. Okay, so that's the uh, Alec Baldwin case. Uh, we'll see. Uh, 
be interesting to see this movie when it comes out. I'm sure people will be, it's getting lots of publicity for the wrong reasons, but uh, you never know how that can turn out. All right, next story I want to talk about is uh, Mike Lindell. This is the MyPillow uh, founder. I don't have a pillow for MyPillow, but it's a big brand in the U.S. apparently. Uh, Mike Lindell has millions of dollars to blow on uh, conspiracy theories and other appearances and such. So he's a big uh, election denier from 2020, denying the results, alleging all kinds of conspiracy theories. Well, including, uh, you know, he, he's had conspiracy theories against Dominion voting systems, which is on the other end of the Fox News uh, defamation case, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the, one of the other things he talks about is how the, the Chinese government has, uh, you know, rigged these election voting machines to switch votes, and so he had this data. And he had held a contest where it was he was offering $5 million for anybody who could prove Mike wrong. Prove Mike Wrong contest. And this guy, uh, Robert Ziedman, who is 63-year-old uh, software forensics expert, went to this conference. He, you, had to, you had to get invited or get vetted somewhat. And uh, he had some friends in the Republican Party, some Trump supporter friends, and he got himself invited. And everything was fine. He claims to have voted for Trump himself anyway. So... But he disproved this, and he wrote this 15-page uh, report, and the uh, contest had, there was an agreement that in the contest that if somebody disagreed with the judges, they could go to binding arbitration. And so these three arbitrators from the American Arbitration Association felt that uh, Ziedman had proved to their satisfaction that this data that uh, Mike Lindell had been providing to all the participants uh, did show, in fact, or didn't didn't show anything. And uh, so the Chinese interference in the 2020 election was not supported by this data. Okay, so then they say, well, you got to pay him the $5 million. Uh, now, Mike Lindell is refusing to do so, and uh, so this, it'll be interesting to see how this comes along. Now, in this case, I haven't read the agreement itself uh, of, you know, the, the contest rules, but it reminds me of the reason I, th uh, I mean, it's a kind of an interesting situation because, you know, Mike Lindell is just such a famous conspiracy guy now. Anybody that's watched late night television, uh, you know, the, the late night shows will have heard the jokes. But it's also reminded me of a, one of the first cases you hear in law school is this one that's called Carlo versus the Carbolic Smokeball Company, 1892 case. And in that case, the Carbolic Smokeball Company had put out an ad in the, the paper to say, if anybody uh, takes this product, consumes this product, and gets the flu afterwards, then we'll pay you 100 pounds. Well, Carlo took the uh, product, consumed it, and lo and behold, came down with influenza. So what the court, uh, the House of Lords, uh, decided in Eng England at the time was that this was a legitimate... So Carbolic Smoke Call Ball Company said, well, you know, that's not a real offer. Uh, you can't accept it. No, uh, the, the court found that this was a unilateral offer to the world at large, liable for anybody to take it up. And so it was a legitimate offer. 
So bring that back to Mike Lindell to say, all right, prove me wrong. Anybody that can prove me wrong gets $5 million. Um, I think he's going to have to pay this. Uh, that goes all the way back to 1892, confirmed by the rules of the contest. Um, but he has bigger problems, I'm sure, because he's under lots of uh, court actions and he must be running low on funds or at least uh, unsecured funds at this point. So we'll see. All right, so... Uh, not unrelated to that is this other, the big story out of the U.S. was the, the Fox News Dominion voting systems uh, defamation case. Now, raise this uh, on its own merits, but also as a comparison to uh, defamation cases in Canada. There was a settlement in this case for $787 million. Now, Dominion Voting Systems had asked for $1.6 billion. Uh, multiple times the... Uh, current or the trading value of the firm from what I understand now uh, Fox News uh, this was, was coming out in dribs and drabs with the news because you know what we've been hearing was you know on air Fox News was sort of echoing or amplifying the messages from you know President Trump and others that the Dominion voting machines were faulty were hackable, were being hacked, were providing false data, all these things about the 2020 election cost the, you know, President Trump the election in his view and in the view of his supporters. So Fox News was, was talking about this. Well, what we heard in the background was that many of their hosts and the, the executives at Fox didn't believe any of that themselves, and but they kept talking about it on air. So uh, Dominion Voting Systems considered that to be defamatory to their company, and uh, and said so. So they sued uh, Fox News for that. Now, as it was coming down, this was a six-week trial was scheduled. The media, and it settled after the jury was selected on the first day. The you know the lawyers were all mic'd up. They were ready to make their opening statements, and uh, then the settlement came through and was announced by the judge, and everybody was sent home. Uh, a lot of disappointment from uh, I think other media outlets who were relishing the opportunity to see. Fox News hosts and executives on the stand and trying to defend how, do you, how could you say this on air when you texted this to your, your friend or whatever. So uh, they didn't get that spectacle. But it wasn't a slam dunk for Dominion Voting Systems either. I mean, they had to show actual malice, the term is, and so that they either knew something, you know, particular statements were lies or else they were, you know, speaking out with a reckless disregard for the truth. Well, Fox News obviously thought there was some exposure on that front or else they wouldn't have settled for the amount they did. But, it, like I say, it was uh, less than less than half of what they had first demanded. So Fox News is uh, taking that as a not a victory of sorts, but at least a mitigated disaster in a sense. Now, compare this to the sort of most famous seminal uh, defamation case in Canada, which is Hill versus the Church of Scientology, Toronto case. Hill was a Crown prosecutor, actually became a judge later, so didn't suffer too much from it in a sense. But the Church of Scientology came out and uh, you know said some things about Hill that were defamatory, and he said his reputation was affected, and he was awarded 1.6 million dollars, which you know any lawyer in Canada that knew about the case was saying, well that's a huge case and. Uh, it's been exceeded, I think, since there was a pilot that was uh, fired and defamed, alleged to have been drunk at a party before flying. Turned out not to be the case, and he got, I think, $3 million. But this one, 
So anyway, nowhere near the um, scale of the U.S. situation. Now, of course, uh, anyway, this is going to have um, hopefully an effect on the 2024 election cycle of um, more honest reporting in the United States. And uh, so we'll see how that turns out. Okay, moving on from the U.S. Uh, up the coast to back to Nova Scotia here. A couple of uh, cases that have some a little bit higher profile, I guess. One is the William Sanderson uh, trial. I've talked about that on this on the Rogers brief before, and uh, he was found guilty of uh, murder and sentenced automatic sentence to uh, life in prison. Well, there's a second part to that, which is when can you apply for parole, which is really essentially determining the length of the sentence. Uh, 25 years being the maximum. The Crown in this case had asked for 22 years. The defense suggested 10 to 12. He's already served seven and a half years in custody. So whatever the number is, is going to subtract seven and a half. Justice uh, uh, Chipman came down at 15 years. And in uh, some comments, so seven and a half already gone. So uh, eight and a bit yet to go. Uh, Justice Chipman in his comments, and these were uh, this was broadcast as well, this hearing with the victim impact statements uh, given, uh, lawyers' arguments and Justice Chipman's comments uh, broadcast by the court, which is unusual, but that was done yesterday, and the recording is still up on the Courts of Nova Scotia website, uh, that any longer period of ineligibility would be subject to, um, you know, court of appeal uh, striking it down, so, so there's no point trying to look like you're denouncing something if it's just going to be overturned at the Court of Appeal. That's not proper uh, a proper use of the justice system in that sense. So, um, Word from the defense is that they may yet appeal this, the 15 years they were asking for 10 to 12. Um, we'll see. Uh, you know, three years is a long time. Uh, it's a big difference in a sense, even though it may not seem much of, uh, at the moment. Uh, but uh, really, it's the difference between another eight years in, in jail, well, seven and a half versus, uh, you know, ten and a half. So that's a big difference. Okay, uh, so that's the William Sanderson trial. Uh, a lot of uh, tears shed yesterday from uh, what I could see from the broadcast and a uh, difficult situation over for a lot of people there. But it may yet be appealed. We'll know within 30 days whether uh, his uh, legal team has advised him to do that and he's decided to do so all right next uh one i want to talk about is come back to the cp allen uh case out of uh, the student that is charged with attempted murder uh, had a knife brought a knife to school uh, put it to his own put it to himself and then uh, you know inflicted wounds on a vice principal and a secretary as well went to hospital were hospitalized non-life-threatening injuries but anyway so the question for the court was whether um, he was the student was fit for trial. A little early for this kind of an application, I would have thought. He hasn't even entered a plea yet. So everybody's presumed to be fit for trial unless the judge is satisfied on a balance of probabilities that you're not. And so there's got to be evidence about that. In this case, it looked like there was, uh, you know, he was at, he's at Waterville in the youth detention center. So uh, he was sent from there f to have an assessment done, came back fairly quickly, and that he is indeed fit for trial. Well, 
to be unfit for trial, to be fit for trial, you have to have three things. One, you have to understand the nature or object of proceedings. Basically, you need to understand that you're in a courtroom. Uh, and, you know, you're the accused, you're charged with this offense, this is where you are. Very simple. Uh, it's a low bar. Second one is also low. You have to understand the possible consequences. Okay, if you're found guilty of this, you might go to jail. You might get a fine. You might get, you know, there's going to be a sentence if you are found guilty. Third thing is you have to be able to instruct counsel. And so that just means having the capacity to do so. What they say, though, is that you don't have to be capable of making rational decisions necessarily and nobody's going to assess how rational your decisions are you just have to be capable and you don't have to be capable of anal ex exercising analytical reasoning you just have to be able to talk to your lawyer and give instructions understand where you are orient yourself to time and place so uh, I thought it was a little premature since you know the, a decision like that or a, an application about not being fit for trial can be made at any time but most times it is made at the trial itself because that's when your mental state sort of crystallizes you know you might not be fit for trial today but you might next week you know if people are going through treatment if they've just been through a trauma and you know this young guy certainly was uh, or appears to have been then, you know, maybe in a few months' time when you're scheduled for trial, you've gone through some counseling, you've talked to people, you're feeling better, and you're a better place, and you're, you know, you're in, you're able to understand the possible consequences and all those things. Well, uh, so this seemed premature. I would actually thought that the more appropriate application would have been under 672.11b, which is uh, seeking to have somebody found not criminally responsible. By, because of mental disorder. So that means that you are unable to appreciate the nature and quality of the act that you've committed. And that, so if you're in a crisis, in an, you know, of some sort, of a, a mental crisis, and, you know, you've lost all sense of orientation, well then, maybe you're not responsible for what you've, uh, for the acts you've committed. Uh, that's something that you can, you know, you have to look back on the moment and try to figure out what the person was going through at the moment. Uh, you know, a doctor, a, a psychiatrist would try to make this determination and then provide that information and opinion to the judge and the judge makes the decision. But, you know, to just check out, see whether he was, you know, fit for trial, I uh, wasn't sure that was a, a useful, a useful use of resources at this point. Okay, so we'll see where that goes. Uh, he's uh, going to set for plea, I think, in May, and uh, I'm sure he'll plead. Um, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll report on anything that comes along in that case out of C.P. Allen. All right, next one is uh, an appeal decision, and this is an appeal decision of uh, Justice Tim Gabriel, and it related to a lawyer who was charged with uh, criminal harassment. His name is Don Frazier. I worked with these, I worked with Don and I worked with the other lawyer as well and uh, Mary Jane Saunders. So uh, so I'm not going to say much about that although I was um, not terribly surprised that, uh, that Don was found not guilty here. He had a trial in front of Judge uh, Beijing who's the regular judge in Truro and the, the case is not, the appeal case, so he was found not guilty at trial by Judge Beijing, 
but it was appealed, and the Crown appealed this, uh, not particularly because of any of the evidence, but because the judge, Judge Bejan, in the Crown's view, Crown is Darcy McPherson, Crown out of Sydney, brought in uh, for the case because he didn't want anybody local to Picto or Truro, I guess, or anybody that uh, would have regular contact with uh, with the, the, the lawyers themselves. So they brought in Darcy McPherson out of Sydney, and he was the Crown on the trial. He was actually also the Crown on appeal. I'll come back to that in a minute. But so I'm going to read a few excerpts from this uh, trial uh, decision, or sort of the appeal decision, which references the trial transcript. So uh, it was after the first witness, um, Mary Jane Saunders, had testified, and the court, and this was at the, so the morning passes, first witness is done. Uh, I think the trial was scheduled for a day or a day and a half. It was, and there was other witnesses scheduled to come that afternoon. So the judge, uh, just before lunch, goes, all right, uh, wondering what's going to happen in the afternoon. Okay, so he says, the crux of this is her. She's the named individual, and we'll call it victim for the sake of where we are now. Miss Saunders is the victim. And then Mr. McPherson, victim's fine. In the criminal code, it's a defined term that court. Yeah, all right, just Mr. McPherson. Includes the term alleged, court. Yeah, so I have no idea where this is going, but it's not going well in terms of conviction. I'll tell you this now. What you have here, I'm going to keep an open mind for the rest of it, but... You think this through over lunchtime. You have an aggressive and annoying partner at a law firm who likes his way. He's been there a long time, and you have a very emotionally unfit, unprepared person who's managing partner, one of the three managing partners. Seems to me, I'll keep an open mind, I haven't heard the rest of the evidence, but it seems to me that a lot, and perhaps all of what was discussed, was in the realm of her job as one of the managing partners. I think you have a very steep hill to climb. I'm not sure you want to spend the rest of the afternoon climbing that hill, I think, I think the prosecution's got to think through. It's a choice you're going to have to make, and I've dealt with you for quite some time now, so I suspect I know where this is going. Uh, all right, so then he goes on for a little bit there, and they come back after lunch, and Mr. McPherson, uh, they replay the, the audio from the discussion, and Mr. McPherson says, uh, including this file, and okay, says... Uh, the Crown is making a motion, an application that you recuse yourself in that regard, and I have to say it's very rare in my career I've made, I've applied for a judge to recuse himself. I can only think of twice in the past. The court, including this file back when, I believe. Mr. McPherson, including this file in another matter, I think last year. There, so far as I recall, the only times I've ever asked a judge to recuse himself, and, and I've never, of course, asked for two recusals on one file. However, I filed a brief, and he references, actually, he references the uh, tab 4 is a document called Canadian Ethical Principles for Judges, and it's prepared by the Canadian Judicial Council, Judge Bejan, of which I'm on the committee. So that's, uh, all right, so that's not looking good in a sense for the Crown. Okay, so it comes back to it. Uh, in this regard and context, Your Honor's uh, statement that you will keep an open mind has to be seen in the light of Your Honor's statement that it doesn't look good for conviction, and that and that the crown has a steep hill to climb. This suggests that under these circumstances, any reasonable person who, in viewing this matter realistically and practically and has thought the matter through, would perceive either actual bias or perception of bias on the part of the judge who made the comment after hearing only one witness, not hearing the, other, the four other witnesses who are coming, not hearing any argument, making a decision. 
court. I did not, didn't make a decision, so don't say that again. I did not make a decision. Uh, I, the court, I told you my concerns. Don't say I made a decision. I'm not saying you made a decision. You just did. I'm saying you said I made a decision. Don't say that again. I said a person. You said you made a decision. And then they go on there a little bit. And then later on, he said, I've said three times I keep an open mind. Yes, three times. Yes, but it's very, you don't believe me. No, it's very little comfort to the person who hears that where the decision is headed. Uh, now, your honor has committed yourself to a position. I have not. I told you that. I have not made a decision. All right. So, uh, what else do I want to get to? Oh, yes. So the judge, uh, again, Judge Bejin later on says, I've not made a decision. I thought you'd want to hear my concerns to help you through. If you don't want any help going forward, I'm fine with that, Mr. McPherson. We tend to bond, we deal with each other, and then something unintelligible. Uh, I will not give you any more feedback ever on your trials, and I'll just zip it, and I will wait till the very end and let, let them fall where they may but I have zero, zero partiality in this matter. Zero. Uh, I was just trying to, as Mr. McDonald said, just trying to move things along. I have an obligation. I have an obligation to make sure that things are dealt with appropriately. And if I have concerns, I should bring them up. All right. So, sorry for re reading those excerpts, but it was uh, really interesting. And so, uh, Justice Gabriel uh, really came down hard on Judge Bejan for those remarks. Uh, he said the trial judge was uh, brusque and outspoken, uh, that the Crown, now he says about the Crown as well, was unusually tenacious and refused to cease some discussions even after the judge was prepared to allow him to ask the question, that neither had their best day. Uh, there was like the victim thing, for example. I mean, you know, you don't want to call somebody a victim as a judge until you've made a decision that the person's guilty. So, you know, he was trying to, in shorthand, to say, all right, this is the alleged victim. And, you know, Mr. McPherson is interrupting the judge to say, well, you know, I'll let me define victim for you. All right, the judge did not need that. Uh, so what is bias in this situation? There's actual or apprehended bias. And the apprehended bias, what would an informed person viewing the matter realistically practically conclude and there is a strong presumption of impartiality on the part of judges and so ultimately that's where uh, justice gabriel came down in the end he didn't you know he said the the court doesn't or this case doesn't cross the very high bar to show judicial bias but he really blames uh justice uh Beijing for the you know the back and forth he said, uh, no, po no bias on the part of the judge, but this, and this was what they call arbiter dicta, which is, you know, you've already made the decision and I'm just going to continue and say this other stuff. And it's not, you know, it's not binding on a, a future court. It's not really, in a sense, part of the decision. It's just a further opinion on the part of the judge. He said that a, a reasonable person watching this would nevertheless walk away with their respect for the justice system shaken that the repetition of what occurred in this proceeding would contribute to the erosion of public confidence in this institution. Now, yeah, he see, he, I mean, he puts more of the blame on uh, Judge Bejan. I disagree. Like, I, I, you know, as a lawyer, 
you have the responsibility to know your judge. And if you're the other lawyer, and this happened to me recently, you know, the, you're watching the other lawyer, and if they're talking over the judge, they're getting, you know, they're a little, getting a little excited, and they can't just let the judge finish their sentence and then take a breath and then respond. They're trying to talk over and argue, being argumentative. As the other lawyer, you're like, wow, this is going great. <laughs> you know, the, you see that and you're like, okay, they, they've lost their, lost their focus. You feel like the other side is, is not, you know, they're scrambling, they're panicking, you know, if they're in that mode. And that's what I see here. You know, I've dealt with Judge Bejan before. I've been in his courtroom. He's fast. He's not, he's not rushing things, but he thinks quickly. He speaks quickly, and you've got to go with that, you know. And there's nothing inappropriate about managing the courtroom. If he sees this case isn't going anywhere, then, you know, instead of wasting a full afternoon or another potentially another full day of court time, which could be used for other things, the judge has an obligation, a duty to manage those cases and, you know, use that limited time wisely and productively. So to me, this was a case of a crown uh, just, you know, not understanding this, you know. Yeah, he's trying to help you in a sense. You may not like where it's going because you think you have a strong case and here's the judge telling you you don't. Well, you know, you need to accept that and... Uh, you have to know your judge, know a little bit about their personality, and be respectful and, uh, you know, do your job, but uh, do it in a respectful way that doesn't negatively impact your client. Now, the other side of this is on the appeal. Like, uh, sometimes it's, well, often it's good to get a different lawyer for an appeal than it is to uh, keep the same lawyer on, because, you know, if things didn't go the right way in the first instance, then they may be set in a certain mindset, whereas somebody with a fresh perspective, particularly if, particularly in a case like this, where Darcy McPherson was part of the problem in a sense. I mean, he was involved in that discussion, and you know, it might have been just as much his fault as the judges. In my view, it was more his fault. Uh, others may disagree, but uh, it's difficult to dispassionately make that argument before the appeal court if you're the person involved and you're trying to, in a sense, you know, not only see that justice is done, but protect yourself and your, you know, justify your own words and actions as well. So I thought the Crown should have assigned somebody else to that appeal if they were going to pursue it at all, which I also think they shouldn't have done. So it was unfortunate, unfortunate for um, the other lawyers involved, for Don Frazier, who had to hire uh, a lawyer for an appeal that was unnecessary, and uh, the other lawyers to have to relive that situation in a sense just by having this decision out there so unfortunate uh bad call by the crown in my view and um anyway we'll see we'll see i i can't uh, you know the the other problem is there's no i mean that this decision is just going to sit there now uh because there's no reason for anybody else to appeal it uh judge Beijing may wish to appeal it or have something to say about it but there's no venue for him to do so other than in future cases. So anyway, we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens there. All right. Uh, last thing, I'll, maybe I'll cover this next week, but uh, in more detail. But there's a, an article out this week from Dale Smith in the CBA magazine uh, called The National, and it's uh, legislation being introduced by Kim Pate, who's a senator, and it's on pardons. 
Now, pardons aren't pardons anymore. They're record suspensions. This was brought in by the Harper government. You can't just have a pardon and then your record, your criminal record is wiped. You get a record suspension, which shows that you've gotten a record suspension. Well, we don't know what's behind the veil, uh, what's been suspended, but anybody, an employer seeing that record is going to know, well, they used to have a criminal record. So it's not the same as it once was. And so what the discussion is in this legislation is, is contemplating is some sort of a automatic pardon after a certain amount of time for certain offenses, and uh, I think this is a good step. It's, you know, there's an argument that you're being punished twice for something because you're punished in the first instance, and then you have a hard time getting jobs, you can't volunteer, and so it forces you, in a sense, forces the individual back into, you know, forces them out of legitimate society because they can't get a real job, uh, forces them in a sense back into criminality and uh, because of their court record. So anyway, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Uh, we'll be following this legislation uh, through the federal parliament. Not terribly often the things that start in the Senate, especially something like this that hasn't, the, the groundwork hasn't been laid yet, so I don't expect anything dramatic to happen right away, but um, we'll see. We'll follow this along through the parliament and, uh, and if it seems to be gathering some momentum. I'll uh, maybe talk about it further in a future Rogers Brief. So anyway, that's it. That was a longer uh, longer session today than I usually do, but uh, I wanted to talk about that Fraser case and uh, some of the other stuff out of the U.S. So uh, until next week, I uh, thank everybody for watching and uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.